Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we can't wait to hear Katie's story, which will include a discussion about body trust and the many other gifts she has found in recovery. Katie is a registered nurse and a yoga teacher whose understanding of what it means to care for bodies, both her own and others, has been deeply shaped by her journey of recovering from anorexia. She cares about walking alongside others struggling with eating disorders and hopes that by sharing her story, she can offer hope and support, which we know is so important. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Katie. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, we are excited to, to dive in. You know, before we, we unwrap some of the gifts that we, that we spoke to earlier, Katie, let's, let's just begin with an introduction to the eating disorder that presented itself first. You know, can you tell us about your eating disorder and, and what do you remember about life with the eating disorder? Yeah, um, my eating disorder emerged my freshman year of high school, um, and it started as a kind of innocent desire to improve how I was performing athletically. What I was achieving in sports was a big part of my 15-year-old identity at the time, Um, and I was playing club soccer and running track for my high school and kind of intimidated by the older athletes and wanted to succeed and just had this idea that maybe if I started to control my nutrition, um, that that might change my fitness and improve my performance. But very, very quickly, I became extremely controlling and restrictive in how much I was eating and how and how much I was exercising and kind of before I knew it those like control seeking behaviors were controlling me and it showed up in my body pretty fast I for a very brief period was performing better um, and then I stopped having periods and I stopped having energy unfortunately the the like loss of my period was kind of affirmed by the like coaches and my teammates as this like sign of peak fitness which makes me so sad looking back on it my parents though were very perceptive and had me in outpatient eating disorder care right away so before I even knew really that I was dealing with something scary and serious there was you know weekly appointments and weight checks and a meal plan and all these things and I kind of like did this tenuous dance for a couple of years where I wanted to, I really wanted to please my treatment team and my parents and my coaches. I didn't, I remember not wanting to be sick. I just, I wanted to participate in my life and be a normal high schooler. But I also, the, an eating disorder had a grip on me. And so I was kind of playing this game of also trying to appease it. The, my coaches and my parents were monitoring me in a way that if I, if I like didn't meet X exchanges or my weight dropped this amount, I would kind of be like pulled from sports that week. So it was a, a, an ongoing and like constant power struggle. And that continued until the day before homecoming, my junior year, I went to a doctor's appointment and was sent straight to the hospital. My heart rate had read really like concerningly low when they took my vitals in the clinic. I was told you need to be admitted. And that hospitalization, it felt like the darkest, rockiest bottom I could have ever imagined. I'd, I'd reached a place where I was so terrified of food that I quite literally had to be coached like for each bite. 
uh, so I'm very depleted and exhausted and lost and so, so scared. Though that was the beginning of like climbing out of the pit of anorexia that I had found myself in. And something about the hospital environment moved me. I, I was witnessing the community of care and hope that exists inside hospital walls and like a seed of something in me felt like I could come back here someday to support others. I left the hospital and went to residential treatment for three months as a teenager um, out of state, like the first time I had been away from family and I relearned how to eat and I relearned how to rest and I came home like ready to engage in my life again and had like a really lovely year and a half or so of recovery where I was able to go back to high school and play sports in a healthy way and be part of my relationships. And I graduated and went to nursing school. So moved away from home, moved a couple hours away from home, ready to like begin this new chapter of my life and kind of like proud of the recovery I had. That was part of my path going forward too, was the foundation of this story. But away from the like scaffolding of support that I had at home, some old patterns of like, restriction and exercise started sneaking in. And it was different enough from how it manifested when I was a high schooler that I didn't really, I didn't really think it was an eating disorder. <laughs> I just thought, you know, I liked to eat mostly green things and <laughs> I needed to run a lot to deal with the stress of nursing school and that that was just that was just healthy um living <laughs> and it was okay for me and I was so wrong it was so not okay but it was almost like my eating disorder snuck in the back door and I didn't I didn't realize it was threatening me until I was in a full-blown relapse so by the, by the fall of my junior year of college I was in an oppressively dark place totally smothered by my eating disorder and ironically, I was taking psych nursing that quarter. <laughs> and I remember sitting in class and looking at the, the global assessment of functioning, the GAF scale, and just watching myself week by week being like, oh, I'm in like the 60 range. <laughs> I'm in the... And I just felt like such a fraud because I was doing these like psychiatric clinicals, trying to learn how to help people who were struggling with mental illness and knowing I was getting like deeper and deeper into my own. I was just living in a constant like fog of terror. I was disconnected from my body and my relationships and my values. I was, I was afraid of my body and I was afraid of the choices I was making, but I also didn't, I didn't know how to stop them. And it was becoming more and more apparent actually that I couldn't stop them on my own. I, I mean, I remember laying in bed at night and being afraid I wouldn't wake up. And I, I knew my body couldn't keep, couldn't continue to endure the like deprivation and exertion that my eating disorder was demanding. I was just unsafe and I, I knew it. I also was deeply ashamed of the relapse. I, I hadn't felt that kind of shame in my eating disorder before because it had never been a secret since my parents had recognized it right away but this time I it didn't I didn't want to let people in I felt like I had had my chance so many people had support supported me before and I thought I had I had really let them down 
and I was supposed to have like closed that chapter and be moving towards my career. <laughs> so I thought my life was over and my dreams were canceled. And I was, I was ashamed to ask for help. But I, re I remember like sitting, shaking and crying in the Dean's office to ask for like leave to go to treatment and just being met by only grace and warmth and support. And that was a theme like in the hardest of the heart. I think when I talk about like gifts of recovery, I also like would love for people to hear that there were gifts even in those like hardest hard that that like goodness was still there and from like my kind patient boyfriend who didn't give up on me to my like amazingly steady loving dad who insisted on getting on the plane with me to take me to residential like my college advisor and then the staff at the residential center that I went back to who remembered me and just meeted me with such like kindness and welcome it was communicated to me in a really loving way that I was the only person who was ashamed of me and the only person who was disappointed. Residential treatment as a now young adult was like challenging in a different way. I think I was smarter in that I, I had more self-awareness, but I also was a little more resistant, a little more skeptical. So it was harder to trust the process that second time. But again, it was just one of the most transformative, love-filled experiences I've ever had. I think that there really aren't words to describe the like immense relief and connection you feel when you sit down at a table with 10 other people who know exactly what you're feeling. That kind of support is irreplaceable. And those relationships were the most intimate and meaningful I think that I'll ever experience I also think about like the opportunity to go to treatment and like have to kind of surrender all the external things that I thought defined who I was and realize that I was still I was still like valued and I was still myself and I could sit with so much discomfort and tolerate it I mean, I think that's such a gift. Most people don't have that opportunity. And I think that like to be able to do that work in such a supported place is, I mean, it's just invaluable. I returned to school three months later after that round of treatment and was still kind of like stumbling through my way through recovery, but I was able to engage in my life and my goals and my relationships again with new hope and new strength. Oh, Katie, that's such a, a thank you for, for sharing all that. It's such a beautiful picture you painted of, of such difficult times and isolation and then hope and, and love and connection. It's just incredible. I, I just want to highlight a, a couple of the amazing things that I heard in that, that, you know, it's, it, it so struck me that when you were describing the shame that you felt with relapse, that that's so common for people to experience that and it is also so common for when when people reach out and say oh I, I can't believe I've relapsed or this has happened for them to receive that like it's okay that happens like that's part of the yeah. illness right it's not just a you know oh you have an eating disorder we apply this thing this treatment and then you go on and everything's fine and you know for some people that's how it happens and that's okay for most people, recovery, like we've said often in this podcast, recovery is not linear. 
and and that's how these illnesses work and that's an unfortunate part of the of eating disorders and eating disorders are tenacious fierce illnesses that do not want to let go easily and they require a lot of support so that we can really help them to let go and and we certainly believe that's possible and full recovery is possible but i think your the poignancy of how that must have felt for you to feel so ashamed of not having done it when right as a as a treatment provider and just a, another human with the experience of an eating disorder like no it's okay it's it's how it works unfortunately so that was just so so beautiful and the the descriptions of of the loss of connection are really striking to me that and i heard it in a number of things that you said you know even from the beginning when you when when physiologically you were disconnected from things like menstruation that are supposed to happen and and yes now we understand so much more that they are supposed to happen in well-trained athletes that it should be normal that well-trained athletes who menstruated you know regularly should continue to do so in athletic competition that it's not just a like oh no that's fine it's not fine and so that there's so many even physical ways that we get disconnected but the the um this theme of disconnection is pretty prevalent in a lot of the ways we think about eating disorders right they separate us from our connections with ourselves certainly and that sense of who am i what do i want to do how does this work our bodies things like what happens to our bodies as, as the eating disorder progresses and then we go through recovery uh, and a really critical part of recovery is is repairing that distance and and reconnecting, uh, reintegrating. So let's talk a little bit about developing that trust, that body trust and appreciation. What kind of experiences have you had that were particularly helpful in in really learning to trust your body, trust yourself? Yeah, gosh, it's been the actually learning to trust my body has been such a long up and down healing process. I, when I left formal treatment, I did not trust it. You know, I had been, I had existed at that point for the better part of eight years in this structure of like weight checks and meal plans and really intensive monitoring. And a dietitian had been like the primary source of authority in my life for so long. <laughs> like I didn't, I was used to somebody keeping really close tabs on me. And I I think I had a little bit of a belief that it would be possible to just listen to my body and let it do it, let it do its thing. But that felt really far from my grasp. <laughs> One thing that really was like revolutionary for me was a practice of yoga. Right? Yoga has taught me to exist in my body without needing to control it. It's like, it's taught me to really listen and respond to how it wants to move and adjust and to notice without, to notice and respond without reacting and fear and judgment, a like softer, more gracious way of being embodied that is just completely opposite from what my life in an eating disorder was like. And like the practice of being able to stay with sensations and like use my breath to anchor and not try to like run away from what I'm feeling is like a muscle that I feel like I've been able to build through yoga that serves me like in all areas of my life that I can feel and then stay. And the kind of miraculous thing is that I realized that that mindset of like trust and allowing that I was learning in yoga 
could apply to my relationship with eating as well. Like that sort of listening is like such a perfect parallel to intuitive eating. And I was really fortunate about a year and a half ago to find a a dietitian who embodies that idea in her practice. And at that point, I had been out of treatment for a couple of years, and I was really enjoying a pretty like stable recovery. I, I, you know, had a job. I like, you know, I was happy. I things were going fine, Um, but I still didn't. I still didn't have a period, and so. I knew that, I mean, I knew there was another level of restoration physically, at least that needed to happen. And it was really important to me that my body like functioned on all levels and my fertility was really important to me. And I I thought I had done irreparable damage. So it was like a, also just this heavy, hard spot for me, but I connected with this, this dietitian with kind of the idea that maybe there was something like some other way, something more to explore. And she just so graciously held space for me to kind of start deconstructing the like sticky old eating disorder patterns that weren't quite gone. And then also the just like diet culture beliefs that had kind of infiltrated my understanding of what it meant to be healthy and live in a body in our society. And the amazing thing was that the more I like challenged the paradigms, the more I wanted to challenge them and the easier it got. Just like day by day, I was leaving rules behind and resting lats and eating all foods and listening and letting my body change. And the more I did it, the more I like didn't want to stop doing it (laughs) because I kept just like uncovering new levels of freedom. And my period came back, like, after 10 years of amenorrhea, it came back, which I just was so affirming, I think, of how resilient our body's ability to heal is, and felt like like a message from my body that, like, we're trusting each other now, like, this is, (laughs) this can work. That's such a beautiful concept, like, okay. All right, Katie, we're in this together. That's, you know, body says to mind, like, we're going to be able to do this because it does require so much trust, so much trust in, in self, so much trust that our bodies really are there for us, not against us in a world where that is not the prevailing message, right? That you spoke about the, the influences of diet culture and just the, the influences of, of health messages and even the, the, the beauty and embodiment and grounding in, in yoga that many people find in yoga, even that has in our culture some, you know, it's been a, a fitness eyes in a way, right? And so it's, it's, uh, it is a beautiful thing to have that trust and to nurture it. So I, I imagine that uh, your life in recovery, you've continued to find ways to nurture that trust and to secure it and to, to keep it close. How does that, how does life in recovery contrast for you? How does that compare now to the life that, that you were experiencing before you were able to have more of that trust? Yeah, this recovery is so, feels so different than the seasons of like quasi recovery that I had experienced in the past. And I think those seasons had like their place in my journey, but it feels so real. It feels so real now. (laughs) I have freedom that I just never dreamed possible. And the obsessive like thoughts about 
food and exercise in my body are not loud. Like I think every once in a while something comes up and I'm like, whoa, what am I, what, what am I even thinking? It's just the volume is so turned down. Um, and I have so much space like in my head and my heart to feel and laugh and love and, and care. The boyfriend who didn't give up on me all those years ago is now my husband and I'm madly in love with him. <laughs> and we love our life together. I just, my life has like color and vibrancy and such richness that you almost don't realize that it's lacking until it, until it just comes rushing back. That is so true, right? That like in the eating sort of feels like, no, no, this is right. This is good. This is fine. This is life. It's totally fine. And then only later do you realize how colorless that is and how colorful and vibrant the, the world of recovery is. And for some people, it can be really a little overwhelming that that vibrancy is just so much like, oh, it's so bright. And I, and I think the, uh, you know, the neurobiology of eating disorders is really teaching us that it, it seems to be true that, that there are temperament traits that many people who end up having an eating disorder probably in no small part because they're predisposed to related to some of those temperament traits in that neurobiology. But uh, noticing that vibrancy is, is, a, is a trait. So if everything seems really bright and loud and fast and the wind is strong and the lights are bright and the sound is is a lot and the texture is a lot and many people speak to sort of a period of accommodating to wow that's a bright light and i kind of have to accommodate to this new brighter world was that something that you experienced at all in your sort of seeing the world more in, in bright colors yeah i am feeling like kind of like realizing a lot as you're saying that because it is so much like feeling like um all the the thing, all the things in this world that I was numbed out to, and it is a lot, and I feel sensitive to it. And I also feel like, well, I want that. I am trying to welcome all of it. But yeah, it, it can feel like a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the things that we're learning is an important part of recovery that we don't want those, you know, bright, beautiful lights and sounds and, and sensations we have are, are good. We don't want to, we want them to go away. We're not trying to recover from that. We're, we're trying to sort of fit our way we're wired into the world and just feel some peace with who we are and how we move about the world. And that even can be a gift, I think, as we learn ourselves, learn about ourselves more closely through the recovery process. What, uh, what gifts what gifts did the eating disorder and recovery provide for you? We hear that sort of a strong, healthy relationship with food and your body. What else? Well, it's not, it's not a story I would have ever chosen and certainly not one I would wish on anyone, but I also wouldn't, I wouldn't undo it. Um, I think it's, it's shaped me. It's grounded my values too, I think, because I know how terrible it was to have them compromised. And it's, I mean, it's kind of rude. My recovery has rooted me in, in humility and purpose. And I think grown my empathy in a way that imagine is only really possible through like knowing suffering and having like done the dark the dark seasons so I think it informs my worldview in that way I also just like we live in such a diet culture world and I think having like done the work of recovering from an eating disorder I'm just so grateful that I know the other option so that's a gift I mean 
I heard a coworker the other day was like talking about how, I don't know, she was saying something about how she can't have ice cream at home because she doesn't trust herself and blah, blah, blah. I was like kind of taken aback. I was thinking to myself, I was like, whoa, I, I have like five cartons of ice cream in my freezer because I need variety and I have it whenever I want. It's great. I'm like having a hard time understanding why that's a problem. Um, yeah, I'm grateful for the freedom that it's given me in that way. It is true that the, the, the really hard work that people do in recovery does allow for, for flexibility and freedom and a sense of ability to make decisions based on things that really matter, like what kind of ice cream do I want tonight? And I have choices and that's amazing. And I think our culture, you're right, is so full of messages about like, oh, you can't have this, you can't have that. And I think also not, you know, our culture is not stellar at helping people to understand that expressing your emotions is a good thing and that knowing your emotions and a lot of people just don't have the skills to identify their emotions and know what to do next. And that's not something that, that many people experience in a regular way. And uh, it's really helpful when you have a sense of like, who am I? What do I want? How do I feel? And oh, I know when I feel sad, I need something to soothe myself. And, you know, there is absolutely more than one or a hundred, you know, commercials that will tell you that ice cream is a great way to soothe yourself. And yet, not so much, right? That that probably isn't going to be fully soothing for people. So it is it is interesting, those sort of gifts that recovery brings us that sometimes make the journey, make the, the really difficult experience have some of those, those bright lights. Any other ways that you think that gifts of recovery serve you in your life, in your, in your work, or certainly over the last uh, year and even currently as we're coping with this pandemic? Thoughts on, on how that has been for you? Yeah, no, absolutely. One way, I think healthcare can unfortunately be pretty judgmental at times. And I think as someone who knows what it was like to feel like I didn't have control over the choices I was making, I have a pretty nuanced understanding of what choice means. And I think when people, when our patients are like making decisions that don't seem to be supporting their health or even more challenging to understand, don't seem to be supporting their child's health, it's just, it's easy to jump to judgment and kind of be dismissive. And I just like operate under a belief now, I think that what's everyone has things that are hard for them. Like if it's hard, it's hard. And I'm grateful for that perspective because I think it, it lets me hold a lot of grace for people and care better. And I also, I mean, the journey of my eating disorder and recovery, it's, it's grown my capacity to be with suffering. And I love nursing. I, I just think that standing in that thin place with people between I mean really between life and death and despair and hope it's such it feels such such a privilege and it's where I want to be even when it breaks my heart it's the like walking alongside people and illness is terrible and beautiful and just breathtakingly human 
Yeah, and this last year with the pandemic has been so hard, like unimaginably hard. And I've had to reflect a lot on what it means to have courage and to show up for people when I'm afraid. And my coping usually feels like this messy, shaky, just trying to put one foot in front of the other and like take a deep breath now and then. But I'm not numbed out and I'm feeling all of it and I'm connected to my loved ones and I'm connected to the families I'm taking care of. And I mean, like we were saying earlier, it's a lot. It's like a lot of, a lot of feeling and a lot of grief and just a lot of hard, but I'm present to it. And it's the fullness of life that I fought so hard for. And it's so much better than my eating disorder, even when it's a lot to, a lot to handle. So I'm endlessly, endlessly grateful for that. I think that is such an important point to reiterate that, and and I, I, you know, we hear it time and time again, because I think it's so true that people will say that life without an eating disorder is way better, way better than even those days in the eating disorder that feel like, oh yeah, this is a good day and I'm following all the rules or doing whatever. That recovery is really worth fighting for. It is a better way to live it's a better experience and it's hard hard work I hear the hard work in so many of of the pieces of your story and that it really supports the the notion that it's it's worth it and you get to have a life that's really different than it could have been so we often think Katie about the you know people listen um to to this podcast and are, are listening in other ways and often we'll hear stories from people in recovery and, and doing pretty well or doing really well and they think yeah that's all fine and well it's great that that was your experience Katie it's so beautiful but I'm not gonna that won't be the same for me I'm in the darkness and I cannot see the light place that you live in and I don't think that that can happen for me what would you say to somebody listening that that feels that right now yeah I felt that way for so long I heard stories and felt exactly that way. I guess I would say that if you're in that dark place, that it's it's okay. I mean, it's okay to be there, um, and you don't have to be there alone. I also I really believe that there's something happening there, like even in those like seasons that feel really like barren, like winter. Like I think that there's growth that we we don't always know that it's happening like under the surface. And so like, if you're struggling, I hold that, I like, I hold that hope for you that it's not lost time, that there's something growing. And I've known that to be true. Like I've lived that to be true, that life comes back and it's not forever. And it's, I mean, it's the really hard parts are like part of a journey and part of a journey you're capable of being on can bear it <laughs> gets better yes so so well said katie thank you so much for sharing your story and your lightness it's your story is inspiring and there's so much beauty and so much really expressive reflection on the on the darkness that brought you to where you are we really appreciate you spending time with us today thank you so much for having me you, you guys do such good work and i'm grateful for it I'm glad to be Glad to be part of it today. Thank you so much.
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the Emily Program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Emily Program. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.